Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapare. That's Thursday, the 30th of June. Call Nathan Rarari Aho. How about those Māori All Blacks? Today, Sweden and Finland in more than a century of military neutrality, and they join NATO, not me, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. Japan swelters under a heat wave. We're going to get the latest from our man there, Chris Gilbert, who's in Tokyo. The era of the District Health Board comes to an end this week. We're going to see how Taranaki's handling the transition. And, you know, with hospitals reaching capacity, we asked the Deputy Prime Minister whether this Friday really is the right time for those health boards uh, to be replaced. Also, I get a beatboxing lesson. Can you go like... Like, not with your lips, like with your tongue against your teeth and go... Am I nearly there? I mean, kind of. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rade. We're going to begin this morning's edition of the programme in Europe. Big news up there. Sweden and Finland have ended, in Sweden's case, 200 years of military neutrality by joining NATO. So with us from Sweden is our correspondent, Anita Purcell Schuland. Kia ora, Doctor. How are you? Fine, thank you. Kia ora. Hey, um, so, I mean, clearly a major change in foreign policy for Sweden, which generations of them don't really, you know, haven't had experience with. The Swedish people, have they felt under threat since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, basically, there's been a lot of panic buying and um, there's been an upsurge in people joining the military forces. And half of those polls said that NATO membership is the right thing to do, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there are also concerns about the concessions made to Turkey. Turkey dropped its opposition to Swedish and Finnish membership after securing an agreement which includes dropping an embargo to export arms to Turkey and to deport people, mainly Kurds, that Ankara suspects as terrorists. Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan has demanded that um, Sweden deport 21 people and Finland 12 people suspected of terrorism. Meanwhile, Finland says that despite the agreement, it will continue to follow its own laws. And in Finland, some of the men Turkey has identified as serving out probational sentences, while one is a Finnish citizen, and Sweden says that it will not deport those who are given Swedish citizenship. Right. Um, And so this all happens and now NATO's got themselves two new members there. How has Russia reacted to this? Well, basically, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov has called the expansion of NATO as a purely destabilising factor in international affairs. Mr Ryabkov said uh, Swedish and Finnish membership will not add security to NATO, will not add security to those joining NATO or to countries that see the alliance as a threat. Russia is also demanding an immediate stop to all activity from Sweden's aid development agency, CEDA, and the Swedish Institute. Otherwise, it will expel Swedish diplomats. Moscow's accusing the aid agencies of destabilising Russian society. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how Russia's um, acting here. And I also see, so they've turned their attentions to Norway uh, over what they say is a blockade to the Svalbard group of islands. What What is this about? Well, basically, um, Moscow is accusing Norway of blocking the transit of goods to Russians living in the Norwegian Arctic archipelago, and it's threatened Oslo with retaliation. Moscow is demanding that Norway resolve the issue as soon as possible. Now, Russia claims that Norway blocked supplies of equipment and food at the two countries' Storskog land border crossing, and these goods were to be loaded onto a ship bound for Svalbard for Russian miners in the archipelago. Now, basically, 
basically Russia is saying that the bloc's supplies consisted of 20 tonnes of food, spare parts and essential equipment to prepare for the winter. Uh, let's keep it Norwegian. The government there, a number of government and political institutions are being targeted by hackers. Do they know who it is or who do they suspect? Well, the hacker group is identified as APT29, also known as Cozy Bear, with connections to the Russian security service, the FSB. The group's been linked to the attack on the Democratic National Committee during the US election campaign. Now, Norwegian institutions affected by the cyber attack includes the Labour Party, the Defence and Foreign Ministries, the Norwegian Security Service, bank services such as the electronic banking ID system. The hackers used the Russian-based service Telegram to send a message, good morning, Norway, to the Norwegian newspaper Dagblad. They also posted a manipulated picture of Foreign Minister Anakin Huitfeld with the label Mrs. Error. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, sometimes a lot of people like to use Wikipedia for study, and you, you can find it fascinating, and people have been finding Russian medieval history incredibly uh, fascinating. However, uh, Anita, it turns out it probably wasn't real, and it's been exposed as a hoax. Yeah, it's the largest hoax in Wikipedia history. A Chinese woman known as Chen Mao has written on Chinese Wikipedia for 10 years a fantastical and fictional alternate history of late medieval Russia. Now, she wrote about made-up political figures, fake silver mines, and major battles that never happened. Now, through her English Wikipedia account, Jamal wrote an apology in which she explained that she's a housewife with a high school degree and that she was reluctant to delete what she wrote for fear of losing everything, including her circle of academic friends. Oh, that is brilliant. She should get it into a series. Make yourself rich that way. Anita uh, Purcell-Sherland, thank you very much. It's 11 past five if you're listening live to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. We go slightly, well, actually, we're going to move there from the top of Europe. Normally we'd go to the UK, but actually the UK is in Spain, if you know what we mean, because I think that's where our correspondent Ali J is, as Prime Minister Boris Johnson is there. Or, uh, kia ora, Ali, are you there or are you back home? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm freshly, freshly back home, but just come from Madrid. Beautiful. Okay, so um, what was security and what's it been like in Spain over the last few days? Because you've got all the leaders of those NATO member countries there. Also, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern there for the most important meeting in the bloc in, in decades. Exactly. So there are 40 heads of state visiting at the moment and security, I mean, security is high. It's all to do with these talks happening whilst there are tensions over the war in Ukraine. Um, As you were saying, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has arrived and this is the first time a New Zealand leader has been invited to speak at a NATO summit. So she's had, um, she had three minutes um, to speak earlier earlier today. She was talking about Ukraine, um, nuclear disarmament. Uh, she also talked about China's alleged human rights abuses uh, and about climate change as a threat to security and stability in the Pacific. So that one's a big topic at NATO as well. So just last night, the um, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg was talking about it too and saying that NATO's determined to, to set this standard on addressing the security implications of climate change. Um, uh, and they're writing this, um, it's all part as well of writing this new strategic 
concept, which is basically this big document they do about every 10 years, um, which outlines kind of NATO's purpose and, and its goals. So the last one they did was in 2010, and, and this is, is time for a new one. Um, but yes, yeah, so last night in, in Madrid, there was a big dinner, which was hosted by the, the King and Queen of Spain for world leaders and their partners. So it was at the, um, at the palace there and everybody attended. And you're right, there was this huge um, security detail. The head of the Spanish police said they'd brought in 10,000 police officers just into Madrid from various teams. The Spanish Air Force were overhead as well. You could hear helicopters um, going off. I was actually in a in one of the main squares, the Plaza Mayor, which is the, one of the biggest squares in central Madrid. Uh, and it's just around the corner from where this um, dinner was being held. So they'd usually you have all these um, chairs and tables out in the middle of the square, all these restaurants and bars, and that was totally cleared away. All of them had to clear their tables because they were using this huge square as a car park. So all the delegates, all their cars were coming in. There were people, we saw people going around um, pulling up the drains to check that yes. everything was okay and, and hundreds of armed police around there. Now, um, so oh, look, I imagine it's the greatest paella anyone's ever eaten. That would be incredible if they've put it on for you. And I know that you said there that Jacinda Ardern was getting to speak, the only one invited that we've had in our history. But Boris Johnson couldn't wait to speak at the NATO summit. Tell us about his controversial things he's been chucking around. Yes, he loves a controversial statement. Um, but he was actually talking, this is something he said. So he was talking to German media after the G7 summit, which has been happening in Schloss Elmo. And he was talking about Vladimir Putin. And he said that he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if he were a woman. So he was talking to the, the German broadcaster ZDF. And he said, if if Putin was a woman, which he obviously isn't, if he were, I really don't think he would have embarked on a crazy macho war of invasion and violence in the way that he has. He said, if you want a perfect example of toxic masculinity, it's what he's doing in Ukraine. Um, so what's quite interesting, though, I mean, the UK Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, has was talking to LBC, which is talk radio here in the UK, and he's supported him. He's, he said, um, Putin's view of the world is a small man, macho view of the world. Uh, you rarely hear the phrase small woman syndrome is what he said. Uh, and oddly enough as well, Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the um, Scottish National Party, who is not Boris Johnson's biggest fan, she was asked about it on TV. And she said as well, uh, she thinks she took, she kind of mentioned um, that she thinks it's important we don't generalise. Women make mistakes as well as men make mistakes. But I do think women tend to bring more common sense and emotional intelligence is what she said. Um, just in the past couple of hours, it came out as well that Russia's presidential press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, he was asked about it on RIA Novosti, which is a Russian news organization. Uh, and he said that Sigmund Freud during his lifetime would have dreamed of such an object for research. That's what he said about <laughs> Boris Johnson. Oh, beautiful. Hey, Ali, thank you very much for your time this year's Out of the UK. Uh, that is Ali J uh, talking about all the goings on uh, in Europe. It is 16 past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. We're going to go to Japan now where parts of the country are experiencing temperatures in excess of 40 degrees Celsius at the moment. It is very hot. It's just not supposed to be at this time of the year. That's the thing, you see. Our Tokyo correspondent Chris Gilbert is right in the thick of it. 
Kia ora, I'm hot, Nate. It's hot here. What's Japanese for? Hot enough for you? Because that's what everybody's saying, eh? Actually, it, 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 I'm happy you asked because the Japanese word for hot is atsui. And um, Japan, in Japanese, like you'll often just say like single word exclamative adjectives out loud. So I, I've been going around all week collecting atsuis that I've heard around town. I'm up to 16 now. I'm just hearing random people on the street go, atsui. <laughs> Tell me about, about the atsui. Well, we're still meant to be in the rainy season here, but for the past week, it's been blue skies and 35 plus degree days. You know, in some parts of the country today, like Goodman Prefecture, it's more than 40. And this is normal, usually for Japanese summer, at the end of July until about mid-August, but never this early. Uh, the rainy season usually lasts for all of June. It's meant to be just you know bucketing cats and dogs every day, but this year it was short and it was weak. Summer here, in short, has arrived a whole month early. Uh-huh. 37 degrees right now in Tokyo. This same day last year was 28 degrees. 40 degrees right now in Gunma. Same day last year, again, 28 degrees. Extreme heat warnings for 32 locations across the country. And uh, the, the main thing here is heat stroke. Japan has a very large elderly population. There's a very severe risk to them and also others, not just about the heat, but how quickly it has become this hot. This, the, you know, the mercury has just shot up in the last week. So the danger of heat stroke is very real. 4,500 this month have already been officially recorded with heat stroke. It should be a lot higher than that. Uh, more than 50% are elderly, and a heat stroke is life-threatening for them. And there's, you know, there's, Two months left of this. The rainy season has ended 25 days earlier than normal here. The problem is also, however, that most of the population, they're still wearing masks. The government has said, hey, please stop wearing your masks outside now. It's fine. This was a few weeks ago, and yet people continue. I would say anecdotally that in my neighborhood where I live, Maybe one in three have begun to take their masks off outside. But in the area where I work, downtown in the city, everybody, everyone's wearing masks everywhere they go. It's the social pressure because nobody wants to be seen with their mask off by a colleague and, you know, and everyone's raising the eyebrow. And also at schools too. Schools are saying to kids, please take your masks off during PE or gym class. But no one wants to be the first one because they don't want to be teased or bullied. But, you know, still, there's records everywhere. All the headlines I'm looking at, hottest day in June in history, driest rainy season, the shortest rainy season, the earliest end date for rainy season. This is all happening at the moment. And the truly bizarre thing about this, Nate, is that the weather is so early that the things that normally accompany Japan here in summertime are missing, such as cicadas. If it's very, very hot outside, you're used to the sound of cicadas Cicadas are missing. They're not here because it's too early for them. People usually have their summer vacation when it's this hot in July and in August, Mm. but they can't escape the concrete and the heat because it's not summer vacation time yet. The national power grid is also under pressure. Daily reminders, please turn off your appliances that aren't being used because we do want you to use air con so you don't get heat stroke. To be honest, it's quite a freaky situation. The temperature will dip a little bit next week, but this is the clearest and scariest sign yet, at least in Tokyo, that climate change is here. It is impacting everybody. And next week, next year, next summer, it's only going to be hotter unless something drastic changes. We're on our way to Venus really quickly, aren't we, to becoming Venus the way it is by the sounds of the weather. I always enjoy these stories that you find. And you said, what's this? This Hyogo contractor passed out after drinking loses USB with 460,000 customers' details on it. Take it away. 
Yeah, this is a typical Osaka story. Uh, just west of Osaka, people might know the town of Kobe, and between Kobe and Osaka is Amagasaki. And a private contractor last Thursday was carrying a memory stick while going out for drinks. A bit dangerous considering yeah. that USB stick held the names, birthdays, addresses, text data, and bank information of some 460,000 residents of Amagasaki. Mm. He had been carrying it to transfer that data to a call center in Osaka, then, so I heard, he got drunk, passed out on the street, and lost it. But at that time, it was okay, everyone said, the city said, because the USB stick was password protected, so, you know, your, your data is safe. Brilliant. However, at a press conference, Amagasaki Temporary Special Benefits Section Chief Naoko-san said that the password contained 13 digits, including 13 characters, including letters and numbers, and people quickly cracked that Amagasaki has nine characters and 2022 has four characters <laughs> and nine plus four is 13. And now Amagasaki 2022 is trending on Twitter because someone gave out the password at a press conference. I'll also say, Nate, that Hyogo Prefecture is a couple of prefectures over from Yamaguchi Prefecture, where, lest we not forget, city officials put all the COVID relief data onto a floppy disk yes. and then accidentally got the bank to send it all to one person who immediately bolted with the money. So if I was neighboring Okayama or Hiroshima prefectures right now, I would be furiously consolidating my privacy and risk prevention schemes because there seems to be something in the Nihon Shu over there that they're giving away a lot of data and, and money to whoever wants it. Well, uh, every week we head around the nation to speak to our reporters from the local Democracy Reporting Program, and it's always good to say kia ora to Craig Ashworth and Taranaki. So Craig's been looking into this massive overhaul of the country's health system, which comes into force tomorrow. That's right. So the massive revamp of the health system takes effect tomorrow. So DHBs will cease to exist and the system's going to be run by a centralised body, Health New Zealand. And in a first, there's going to be a parallel body, the Māori Health Authority, to improve outcomes for whānau. And it's going to have its own money to spend to achieve that. So when you've been digging, what have you found about the Māori Health Authority? Well, look, I had a good chance last weekend to hear direct from the Interim Chief Executive of the Māori Health Authority, that's Rihanna Manuel. She spoke at the annual Sir Māori Pōmari Commemoration Day. That's a, a big annual event at All Waimarae here in Waitara, and it was held online for the third year running, two years off for COVID, and then this time they've got a big building program on there, and so they had no dining hall to uh, look after Manuhiri. Mm. So online it went uh, through the radio station I work for. And um, now because uh, Tamawi was the first Māori doctor and then a health minister in the 1920s, there's always a focus on health. And so, I mean, it's good to get it from the horse's mouth. What did Rihanna Manuel have to say? Yeah, she had uh, three main themes, that equity in health is going to take a long time, that progress outside of health is necessary, and that despite all that difficulty, there are short-term gains to go for. So she said, look, it's 182 years since Treaty of Waitangi was signed, and since then the system hasn't achieved equal health outcomes for Māori. So fixing that failure won't happen overnight. She says uh, much of what they do now actually won't make a difference for adults now, but it will for tamariki mokopuna, so today's babies, inherit a better system. Now she says, um, you know, the health system's just one waka, but a whole fleet of waka is needed so health equity needs better education and housing for Māori and stronger iwi and hapu and a robust economic base because, you know, better decisions come from whānau when they have a solid financial foundation and a warm whare to live in. 
And, and then culturally, she says, look, the Māori Health Authority is going to also focus on how to strengthen te reo, mātauranga Māori, whakapapa and pūrāko, or traditional uh, narratives, and use those as methods to heal Māori as whole people, as readily as we use like Panadol and chemotherapy. So they're looking to build strong, secure, resilient whānau. It all sounds very ambitious there, and quite often, you know, people can write very, uh, you know, ambitious things on A4, but I'm just thinking, what, won't people be looking for more immediate gains? I mean, these are, you know, on those often shameful, you know, gulfs in the health outcomes? Yeah, yeah, of course, that's how the government's overhaul of the system will be judged. So, you know, yeah, all these sort of systematic changes, long-term changes are great, but Brianna Manuel says there are lots of ideas to get some quick gains. So, for example, right now there's 155 Māori providers across the Motu, and they have like up to 100 contracts each to deliver services. So that means 100 different reporting and monitoring demands and, and you know, employ people to meet those needs. Now, the Māori Health Authority is going to take over all that contracting. And Manuel says they want one or two or maybe three contracts and for longer than just a year. So, you know, planning can, can go on and, and providers can be freed up to get on with the mahi. Now, also, um, you know, while the system's centralised, communities are going to get to make health plans in what's called localities. So they'll decide priorities and how to achieve them in their local areas. At the moment, the uh, DHBs that are going out, they have iwi advisory boards. They're going to get some teeth as iwi Māori partnership boards. So they get to either approve or not the plans that are drawn up. Now, they've never had that much say before. So she says, look, if your plans don't consider all influences like education and local government and iwi and hapu, then they're probably not going to get the tick. You know, there might be people still that go, that still feels pretty pretty abstract. What, what about the tangible health gains on the ground? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, look, as a registered nurse herself, Rihanna Manuel did set out some ideas for immediate gains. Uh, she says technology is going to be important, using the internet to get services out to isolated rural areas, villages. And, um, you know, she said gone are the days of just going to a clinic for health delivery. Mm. So she gave, like, the example of, say, an audiologist who can assess hearing with a local assistant wielding the scope in your ear while the specialist is looking at it from a distance online. Also, uh, another example in Thames recently, the DHB set up the very first mammography suite inside a Kaupapa Māori provider. So that's not an increase in Pūtia, but a shift of resources from one place to another to get better access. And she says um, they want a more Māori workforce, not just more doctors and nurses, though they do want those, but also the likes of the uh, kaimanaki who helped nurses at the COVID-19 iwi testing and vaccination clinics, you know, and out in car parks and so yeah, forth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Māori Health Authority says, look, let's get micro-credentials for those workers. So they get signed off for particular clinical tasks to take the pressure off nurses, who in turn can ease the pressure on doctors and specialists. So, yeah, they're looking at all these sort of changes quickly to lock in those advances that were made when Kaupapa Māori providers stepped up to lift vaccination rates and, and support Wano. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Running out of June. It's the day we call June the 30th. Let's have a look at what happened on this day of our life. In 1898, it was the very first known ad, automobile ad. And it was in Scientific American, and it was by the Winton Motor Carriage Company. And the headline for you to buy one of their new crazy things called an automobile was, Dispense with a Horse. 
There you go. In 1937, it was the first time that um, people thought of an emergency number, so it was London that were the first to launch this in 1937. The number there, 999. In 1953, the first Chevy Corvette was produced. If you liked cars that were white with red interiors and black tops, that was good for you because that was the only colour they were made in. They made 300 of them just to see, and they went pretty well. Uh, they were priced at 3498 bucks. It's actually a fully electric um, version of that and they'll only make fully electric ones uh, coming out from the year 2025. If we go to arts and culture, huge significant day in American culture. Eddie Murphy's Coming to America came to cinemas this day in 1988. If we look at birthdays, Michael, um, Mike Tyson, I should say, is 56 years old today. But Michael Phelps is 37, so you might know about him. Half man, half fish. He, he set 39 world records, 20 Guinness World Records. He is the greatest, he's the best Olympics ever. 23 um, medals, the most golds in a single game of eight, but his most surprising world record that Michael Phelps holds is the longest televised golf putt. 48 and a half metres on the par 4 six at Kings Barn. He landed an eagle there. He was playing in a pro-am. He said he was just learning golf at the time. And there he is, partnered with this PGA Tour player. And Mr. Best did everything. He goes, oh, I'll never go at this. Bang, 48 and a half metres. So if you can land one of those, uh, you are as good as Michael Phelps. And that's what happened on this day of our life, June the 30th. in life for free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money. Joining us now from the business team is Nicholas Poynton. Kia ora man, how are you? I'm well, thank you. 48 and a half metres can you putt that one? No, but I also wanted to mention Michael Phelps' swimmer um, got into a bit of trouble as well winning all those Olympic medals while, medals while also being a big weed smoker. Oh, he was heavy on the bong, I believe they say. Yeah, yes. that's a record in itself, <laughs> right? Yeah, especially how fast he could be. <laughs> hey, exactly. Um, uh, so the, the, people always love to, it's funny, like, yeah, but in Australia, yeah, but in the UK. But if you say that about our small firms, we're going all right, right? Yeah, New Zealand small firms are doing pretty good when we compare them to our counterparts in Australia and the UK as well, for that matter. Now, this data comes mm. from the small accounting software firm Zero, huge market share here in New Zealand, also in Australia. They've also expanded into the UK, so they've been able to give us some insights into how, you know, comparing the small business market mm. in these different countries. And it shows that while sales growth in New Zealand, not as good as what we've seen in the UK and Australia, it's in the jobs front where we are looking pretty good because Australia and the UK, they're really struggling with skill shortages at the moment. Um, it's really affecting businesses ability to really scale up. Uh, there's huge sort of poaching going on across the industry. Whereas here, although we hear a lot about how skill shortages are pretty bad, not as bad as we're seeing overseas. We're sort of in a sweet spot in that regard. Uh, and, and, and the likes of Australia and the UK, growth has slowed or even contracted when it comes to jobs and wow. wages. So look, that's something that we can maybe feel good about. But like you say, whenever we compare ourselves to overseas countries, it can make you feel good, but at the end of the day, it's all relative and sort of who cares how, how it's going overseas. You know, Did, you live in New Zealand, you yeah. don't live in Australia or the UK. Now, Nicholas, that, that thing of, of always going, yeah, but in Australia, their economy is doing this. Is it a fair comparison? Because when I have a look at it, I'm like, but they're so much bigger than us. There's so much, like, I always look at when I was, you know, when we're playing Olympics, I always mm. go, yeah, Ireland, I go against Ireland and Estonia because they're about the yeah, same as yeah. us and I see how we're doing there. you measure it per capita, right? Yeah, yeah we exactly. love per capita in New Zealand. Per capita, we punch above our weights when it comes to per capita. Mm. Look, when you say that Australia's economy, 
because it's so close, it naturally makes sense to compare ourselves against them. But their economies are a lot different to ours. Just think about the size of its natural resource industry mm. uh, in terms of mining and things like that. Uh, you know, an industry where you can really generate high wages but not necessarily need to go to university or have a, have, mm. have a high level of sort of um, you know, tertiary education, things like that. That's just one thing that jumps out straight to me. Uh, so big exports, much big financial services sector, that, that brings a lot of money into the country as well. Yeah. Look, we are just, we're going up against the big guys. It's hard to compete in that regard. So, look... I can understand why people like to compare ourselves to Australia because it's so easy just to go over and move there. there. But uh, not necessarily like for like. No. Thank you very much, Nicholas Point. And uh, you can hear more from Nicholas uh, and the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. Let's go to the money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar can buy the following things. 62.17 US cents, 90.44 Australian cents, 59.51 Euro cents, 51.25 British pence, 4.16 yuan, 84.91 Japanese yen, 33.23 Russian rubles and... 561.577 North Korean won. The professionals of RNZ of the Morning Report team, they are here with you after six. Susie Ferguson, of course, in early. Prepping up. Kia ora, how are you? And what do you got happening today? Uh, kia ora, I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, Nearly good. the end of the week. Yeah. Oh, that's true, eh? Yeah. yeah Thursday. <laughs> oh, you've cheered me up, Nathan. Uh, we're going to be talking NATO on the programme today. Uh, this is as it's come to commit to continue supporting Ukraine. And Jacinda Ardern, of course, speaking at the NATO summit, urging leaders not to allow the war to trigger an arms race. Uh, so we'll be hearing all about that uh, on the programme after six o'clock. Also, Talking about this blood pressure drug, uh, Acuretic, it's taken by 36,000 New Zealanders. It's found to be a cancer risk uh, because of something that is in it. We'll be hearing from Pharmac about that just after 7 o'clock this morning. And also a bit of sport, convincing win for the Māori All Blacks over Ireland last night. It was so Pleased? good. I got emotional. Pleased? I did. Oh. Yeah, well, I remember my dad, you see, when mm. when, when our team play. he was called it our team, when our team play, so I remember, remember my dad when, it, when they play, so it's always wonderful to see. I thought we were going to get a hiding, so I was very happy. Oh, well, that's very good. And Excellent. my mate from school is one of the coaches, so, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, we will be hearing all about that also uh, after 6 o'clock on Morning Report. Thank you very much, Susie. 12-year-old Macy O'Field comes from this really musical family, so it's not really a surprise that he competed in Talent uh, Talent Wired Upper a couple of weeks ago, and then he won the under-14 section. What is surprising, probably, is his skill and his chosen talent of beatboxing. And if you don't know uh, what beatboxing is, it first appeared in the mid-80s, so you've been looking in a real other direction there. You basically just use your mouth as a rhythm instrument. So Macy O combines his oral, his oral skills there with loop pedals to entertain the audience. And I asked Macy O, how did you become interested in beatboxing? I'm not sure. I mean, I've always been like a musician, and there was this one kid who came at our school halfway through 2020, and he started beatboxing and stuff, and I was like, oh, how is he making all those sounds and stuff? And then I just like fell in love with it, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just so cool. You could do it wherever, just making music out of your mouth. 
The new guy arrives. He's got a bit of beatbox in him. Can you remember what the first beat you tried was? Was it a very basic type one, or was it one that one of your favourite songs that was in your head? I did use the beatbox just like. But then he came and he was doing like instead of just drums, like he was doing all sorts of sounds, and I tried, but it didn't sound that good. Ah, see, with a name like Maceo, I'm picking because I think Dad Cody is is there. Uh, with a name like Maceo, rhythm sections become quite heavy in your life, don't they? Is this is this a tribute to which Maceo is is Maceo's name inspired by Parker? Yeah. Yeah, the great Maceo yeah. Parker with your rhythm sections. Cody, tell me about this. Have you, during Maceo's life, were you one of those dads who tactically used to like play music to him and go, what about this, huh? Huh? What about this? A little bit sometimes, but generally Maceo, from a very young age, like as a toddler, would be really interested in music, pick up instruments, and me being a musician, having, having a lot of music instruments on hand, he'd just grab them and play them and started playing drums pretty early on and now he'll just pick up a piano or a bass guitar or a guitar or whatever and figure it out for himself what a beautiful gift to be able to share with with your son because obviously you feel music very much the same way yes yep yep music's been a big part of my life and um yeah, it's great for us to share something together and be able to play together and do those things when we get the chance, which doesn't happen that often. <laughs> so, Maceo, when you were talking before about your beatbox being fairly basic, or just the beats and that, is that you were kind of just doing drum beats that you'd learnt to yourself? Is that, Was it kind of a practice uh, like that you did? Yeah, like I, I would do that, like drums really, and that's all I'd do. But then he came and I found out like it's not just about making drums, it's about creating like anything really. Well, I mean, you absolutely got up on stage and absolutely nailed it from the video that we saw of you winning the yeah. talent contest there in Wairarapa. Learning to go from, from your beats that you did before to the sound effects. Can can you give us some of those so the audience can understand what you mean by the bits that you added in, those sort of drum and bassy sounds? Like a demonstration? Yeah, if you like if we could. Yeah, yeah, go for it. You know what, Maceo, that you just transformed me back to the mid-90s and I was in a place called the Boiler Room and the box and go, like, what? Yeah, no, I've only got two bars on my phone. I can't. They said they'd be here, which is what you did. That's it's just incredible to do that. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you to change that technique and learn that? The first day, like, after, when he started teaching me, yeah, like, the first day I managed to do, like... <laughs> I've been improving that one sound and then just going on YouTube and stuff and learning, you know, learning all the sounds off there and just teaching myself. That sounded amazing. When um, Maceo was sick, I think, in 2020, he was sick for about a week and it was midwinter and uh, he had a bit of a cut on his hand that was infected so he couldn't pick up the drumsticks. So he spent literally that whole week just watching YouTube videos and teaching himself the techniques and stuff like that. I love it. So, Maceo, give me, give me some tips here, man. So that bit was cool. It kind of sounded like a purring cat, but a purring cat that, that, that knows about the streets and a bit of funk. Give me some advice there with what we're learning how to do. Like learning how to do... Like yeah. The... yeah, give me a lesson. What do I... So... 
Can you go like? Am I close? Like not with your lips, like with your tongue against your teeth and go. Like that? Yeah, but then you start to close it like. Oh. Oh no, here I'm like. Like you gotta. Yeah, but try like so go. But with your mouth almost closed, like. I'm terrible at this. Am I nearly there? You're such a patient teacher. I mean, kind of. <laughs> that's the best, that's the honest feedback of Gen Z. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, <laughs> it's harder than it looks. And does that, so do you, um, have you been doing stuff where you can lay down different tracks of yourself doing this and almost like a little, you know, a little beatbox band? Yeah, like that's what I did in Why Up Has Got Talent. Like I did the... First part, the drum and bass, the beatbox was, you know, solo, and then I started recording it when I got to the... And then started recording that and then went on from there and then created, like, this song kind of thing. That was a 2022 Talent Wairarapa Under-14 winner, Maceo Field, and Maceo's dream is to compete in the National Beatbox Champs, which are in Hamilton next month. We are racing toward 6 o'clock. It's 11 minutes to here at first up on RNZ National. The government unveiled its plan for Wellington's transport infrastructure yesterday, but the business case won't even be completed until 2024. Also, construction doesn't begin until 2028. And, you know, Labor might not be in government by then when it gets underway. So if it doesn't get support across Parliament, it could get bogged down and become a very expensive waste of time with no solution uh, to traffic woes. Transmission golly. Uh, when I spoke with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson, I asked, why is it going to take so long? What's the problem? Is it made out of jib? <laughs> yeah, if it was made out of jib, the timeline might be even longer. Uh, no, look, this is about doing it once and doing it right. That's fundamentally what's happening here. I've lived in Wellington, you know, for about 27 years. I've been the MP for 14. I've seen a heap of different ideas and proposals for what to do with transport. And we've just got to be able to agree now on something that's going to future-proof us. So there's, this is a big shift. You know, light rail out to um, the southern suburbs, bus priority lanes, another tunnel going through Mount Victoria, an extension of an existing tunnel to, to make sure that we can get around the base and reserve more easily. These are not small changes. They are very significant. And so, therefore, we've got to get the final business case done, agree on the scope, the cost, etc., settle with the regional council and the city council exactly who's paying what and then get on with the build. So I appreciate that it's going to take a while, but we are talking about future-proofing Wellington for several decades here. When you're future-proof, I mean, like, you know, you might not be the government, so are the other parties, have they given in-principle support? Because the thing is, of course, if you haven't got a cross-party consensus, it might just all get scuppered. Yeah, and look, I, I really hope that all parties will say, look, there might not be every single thing we like here, but for the exact reason that you're indicating, we're going to get on board. I did see the Green Party today who do have some concerns about some elements of it saying, look, it's a good start. You know, that's a place to work from. Um, I'm not sure the National Party's quite there. I think they seem obsessed by putting 
four lanes of vehicular traffic out to the airport. That's simply not future-proofing. We need to make sure we're giving people more sustainable transport options. You know, we want more people into public transport. We want more people cycling and walking. And if we were to take their option up, we would simply just put more cars through. We wouldn't be reducing our emissions. And actually, we really wouldn't get on top of the congestion either. So I hope they come around. There's plenty of time for them to do that. And as we go through the business case, people, I hope, will see the benefits, which are, are significant. It's probably worth saying too, Nathan, that it's not just a transport project. The option that we've chosen has been chosen in part because it creates a transport spine where we can build houses. And for those who know Wellington here, we're talking about Cambridge, Kent Terrace, down Adelaide Road, where we think there is a lot of room for us to be able to build housing that will allow people to have a really good life in the inner city of Wellington, close to these transport networks. And so that's the other reason things take a bit longer, is that we need to make sure that um, we're getting the house building side of it alongside the transport link. Let's move on here. Just um, Obviously transport's a problem around the world on oceans and planes and that. We're hearing about big delays of things like cold and flu medicines, like nasal throat sprays and things, even even Nurofen. Do you know what's happening there? Yeah, look, I, I have heard about the fact that particularly around some of the, the throat sprays that have been given pretty good press around their ability to help you deal with COVID. I, I know there have been some issues there. Yeah, I think in the basic products, you know, the, the paracetamols and so on, there's no problem there as far as I'm aware. But obviously it's winter and, as you say, we've had a significant number of, of supply chain issues. The really important thing here is that people do take up the flu vaccine and we've obviously expanded uh, the number of people who can get that for free now. And that obviously is the preventative measure. But, um, you know, the, the basic stocks of what you need um, to deal with, you know, the, the main symptoms are still available for people. Let's get to COVID. I mean, we're getting, on average, there's 12 deaths a day at, at the moment. And did the maths with Michael Baker on on the show yesterday morning. And, I mean, that's, that's you know, 4,000 deaths a year is, uh, you know, what, what we're looking at if the rate continues for for a year. That's not not acceptable, is it? Oh, look, you know, we obviously want to, you know, do as much as we can to ensure people don't end up in the position where, where COVID is the cause of their death. What we talk about, and it's, it's a bit macabre, isn't it? But what we talk about is the excess mortality rate, as it's called. And there's no doubt that there is evidence that, you know, we, we're ahead of where we would normally be. Equally, some of the people dying from COVID may have died from other conditions through through the course of a normal year. So it's it's awful. It's, it's terrible for that person, their family. And, and yeah, we want to make sure we limit that. That's the reason why we've still got the public health measures in place. The fact that we now have a fourth dose available for a range of people aged over 50 people with particular conditions. It's the reason why we still want people to isolate when they do get COVID or they live with somebody who's got it. It's the reason why we continue to ask people to wear masks on public transport and in shops and so on. So we've got to keep doing the public health measures and we listen very closely to our advisors on what's required here. We've got a review of the of the protection framework which Dr Vera will be announcing very very soon and so you know you'll hear a bit more there but we do constantly keep it under observation but you know it's the reason we've kept those public health measures which many countries have already abandoned. We want to limit 
um, the impact of, of COVID and we're definitely facing a, a winter where flu and COVID together is putting a lot of strain on our system. I know you mentioned there about Dr Verrill's going to be making um, a statement soon on it. I mean, when we spoke with, with Michael Baker, I mean, he mentioned mask mandates at schools and I know that, you know, from a lot of teachers it felt a bit like, gee, is this letting the genie out of the bottle? You know, mask mandates for schools, large gatherings, would those be on the table with the likelihood of coming back compulsory again? Yeah, look, I think we want to make sure that people are wearing masks as often as possible. We get really mixed feedback from schools around the wearing of masks. And, you know, a number of schools have decided just to keep using them, and that's that's terrific, and that's, you know, good for them. But we also get feedback that it causes a lot of issues and difficulties in schools. And, and actually, some of the other options, like better use of ventilation systems, and we've been supporting schools with that, you know, and making sure that windows are even just opened a little bit, um, even in, in winter, with perhaps using the heating, you are actually in a position then to be able to deal with some of the issues. So it isn't as clear-cut as compulsion there, but a lot of schools are doing it. It's important we've got good availability of masks, and so we continue to work on that as well. But but Dr Verrill, when it comes time to do the protection framework decision about what traffic light we're at, we'll, we'll definitely have more to say about the measures that we think are important. Okay. On, on Friday, the, the district health boards, all 20 of them, they become a thing of the past. Health New Zealand arrives, so does the Māori Health Authority. And, you know, you've got, you're just coming off the back of a flu. I know that uh, we went up to the hospital the other night because uh, Miss 14 decided to go and fracture her arm, and it took a heck of a long time to get there. Is this the best time to be turning the whole system around? And I mean that because right now, you know, all we're hearing about the health facilities is that they're getting slammed. In the end, there's never going to be a good time to do this. And the reality is that the issues the health system's facing this winter are the very reasons why we want to make the system more effective and efficient, to make the best uses of the resources we've got right around the country, to have much, much more of the treatments that people are going to hospital, not not your daughter's um, fracture, but other issues that are taking people to hospital that actually should be dealt with in community care with your GP in a primary care setting. So that's why we need to make the shift. And, and I do take as my bellwether here the professionals who work in our health system who are stretched at the moment and under pressure, no doubt about that. They want us to get on with this because they know the system is inefficient. It's inequitable. The Māori Health Authority is a massive step forward to deal with some of the really poor health outcomes that Māori have experienced. This is the system and change that we need. It'll take a bit of time to, to get all of the of the positive outcomes that we want, but the longer we wait, the more challenging things get. Let's talk about your work uh, and what's going on with the people at your work across the hall from you. So um, the national leader, Christopher Luxon's anti-abortion views came out, Simon O'Connor has been under the spotlight this week after celebrating the Supreme Court overturning in the United States Roe v. Wade. What's going on across the bench from what you can see? You know, in some senses, what we've heard from Christopher Luxon is good in the sense he says, well, we're not going to change abortion law. I just find that very, very hard to reconcile with the views that he holds and the views of the likes of Mr O'Connor and, and Simeon Brown and others who are very conservative on these issues. And, you know, in the end, they, they're not being authentic to themselves and it, it raises 
reasonable questions in people's minds about whether or not they're authentic and they're going to stick to this. You know, from the, our perspective, we, we decriminalised abortion in 2020, moved it into the Health Act, the Prime Minister led the charge on that. We had a conscience vote. In our caucus, we had a small number of MPs who didn't vote for it, but the vast bulk of our, our team did, and we're very pleased to have done that and made reproductive health services more available. There you go. We're back in your ears tomorrow. Here's Morning Report.